0: You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome, fellow diplomats. This is Civil War Diplomacy, a show where we look to ease tensions in the ongoing cold civil war happening in our political arena by opening up some communication between the various factions. My name is Jordan Genso. I am the host and a uh, self-appointed representative for the Democratic establishment. I look to bring on some guests who will get me outside my bubble and help me see another perspective on things. My guest this week is Buddy Morehouse. He is the vice president of PR and media at uh, the Michigan Association of Public School Academies. And we are going to have a conversation about education policy and charter schools and uh we're looking to have it be a worthwhile, friendly discussion. So thank you, Buddy, for joining me. How about you uh, provide a little background for the audience as to what you've been doing within uh, the education realm?
1: Sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me here, Jordan. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, yes, my name is Buddy Morehouse. I'm the, I am I work for uh, the Michigan Association of Public School Academies, MAPSA, which is the State charter School Association. I've been there about 10 years now. Um my background before that uh for about 26 years I was a newspaper editor and reporter in Livingston County and then uh left that job in 2009 when it was eliminated and then I um started uh working in PR for a little while I, I worked um what which I still do making uh, documentaries and then in 2011, I joined MAPSA, the, uh, the Charter School Association. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, um, we are the, the advocacy organization for the states. Uh, there's almost 300 charter schools in Michigan right now. Yeah. Educating about uh, 10% of all kids uh, in the state. Um, they're especially popular in the urban centers of the city. Uh, half the kids in Detroit and Flint att- attend a charter school. Um, But I also, uh, in addition to working for the Charter School Association and helping with their communications and public relations and outreach, my wife is a charter school founder and director. Mm -hmm. She um, uh, runs a – is the director of a charter school in Pinckney, a Montessori charter school. And uh, my two daughters have both graduated from charter schools. My my older daughter, Amelia, graduated from FlexTech High School, which I know you're very familiar with. And then uh, my younger one, um, Lottie, she graduated from a Light of the World Academy, what my wife's school. Yes. So I'm a charter school spouse, charter school dad, and a, um, and a charter school advocate. Um, and then in addition to that, I have a, a new um, perspective on things that in higher education, I'm teaching a class right now at Hillsdale College. So uh-huh. I also kind of have the – yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little taste of higher education as well. So
0: – Wonderful. Well, and so just to provide the audience a little bit of my background in charter schools, um I – yeah, as you had mentioned with FlexTech High School where your one daughter attended, um I in 2012 uh, joined that school's board of directors and ended up serving also as the president of the board for that school. But prior to being asked if I was interested in serving on that board, I had – very little knowledge of charter schools. Um, the kid I mentored through, uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters, my little brother, he started attending a charter school in high, um, at the high school level and he saw that it was a better fit for him and, and saw some success there. And so I had a favorable impression of charter schools. And so it was a great opportunity to get to serve on the board of one. Um, and then, yeah, to serve as president. And that was a, a great experience with Flex Tech High School. Um And and just by being a board president, I was then able to attend various events in Lansing to be an advocate for charter schools and, and kind of get some insight into that whole realm. But as a liberal, it, it's interesting because most of the people involved in charter schools typically tend to be more on the conservative side of things. And so I I always found it a fascinating conversation when I would interact with other uh, charter school advocates, uh, as to you know, what our perspective of the system and uh, some of the different things that we saw as potential benefits or reforms that could be needed. When you talk
1: about the policy level, you're right. Uh, most of the the people you tend to think are, that are involved are are more conservative. But when you when you look at the 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 people who are served by charter schools, the parents and the students. Uh, in Michigan and around the country, but certainly in Michigan, they are overwhelmingly democratic. Yeah. Um, it's, which is one of the real interesting things when you start looking at, at uh, the education landscape in, in Michigan is that like I said, half the students in Detroit and Flint attend a charter school. Um, their parents are and their families are overwhelmingly democratic, right? If you look at the polling that's done on it, um, black and brown families are overwhelmingly supportive of education choice yeah. of charter schools. It's the one group that is is really not our our uh, white progressives. Yeah. It's it's the only group, and and those tend to be people who don't have charter schools in their communities, uh, that maybe don't live in as as diverse an area, and they just um, don't see the value in it the way that the the parents do who live in those communities.
0: Yeah, as somebody who when I ran for state rep in 2014 as a Democrat, I do know that yeah, there are many on the left, but typically yeah, the those who don't come from the urban areas but more exurban um out near Livingston County where we are, uh yeah, there are many of them who just are opposed to just the concept of charter schools and, and just want to eliminate them entirely. I've always taken a different approach, seeing the value of them. Um, now my perception has been that it's, they, they are a good complement to the traditional schools. Um, and that they can be very useful in serving the overall education system. I do think though that, uh, some reforms are. Needed. And, um, now before we get into some of the policy, let's first lay out for the audience who may not have that much familiarity with charter schools, um, the different parties involved. And so now my view was that when I, when I started serving on the uh, school board for a charter school, it took me even a couple months to fully realize that you basically have three entities involved. You have the charter authorizer. You have the school itself, the school board, and then you typically have a management company which the school has hired to basically work as the administration of the school. And so those three different entities, um, they have different roles and responsibilities um, and most of the controversy typically involves the management companies of them because people misidentify and they think that charter schools are for-profit – when the charter school itself, that entity is nonprofit just like a traditional school board um, but they are hiring and outsourcing the administration to the management company just as traditional schools often outsource and hire private companies for different services, whether it's you know janitorial or um you know when I went to school we would get Domino's for pizza for lunch and that is a private company making money off the school but it's not a for-profit school then so these management companies they can be for-profit but the schools themselves are non-profit entities and so it's that relationship and those three entities would you do you have the same perspective on that or is there anything that uh the audience would benefit from your insight on on the arrangement of those three entities. That was an
1: excellent description okay.
0: of of charter schools. Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, charter and,
1: and I really want to stress also that charter schools are public schools in yes. in every respect. Every charter school teacher has to be certified. Every administrator has to be certified. Every penny that they spend has to be reported. And uh, charter school students have to take all the same tests yes. that. So so this um this myth that's out there that somehow charter schools are immune from state regulation and they they don't have to follow the same rules and don't have to take the same tests is just not true they they are public schools in in every way um they just uh operate a little bit differently they, their their mission is like you said they they're set up to serve a, a niche that's not being filled in that community they're not set up to just be a replica of the local school district. So you'll find charter schools that have a specific academic focus like Montessori. You'll find some that have a career focus. There's a wonderful school in in Grand Rapids that's an aviation school. It's located right at the airport. Uh, there are schools that are set up to um, serve certain cultural communities um, in uh there, there's schools on Indian reservations in the Upper Peninsula that are um, set up to serve tribal populations. So yeah. w- when you talk about a charter school, it's not like each one has it has a um, the same identity. Right. Uh, there are 293 charter schools in Michigan right now, and there's and they are 293 different identities that they have. Uh, you talked a little bit about the management companies. Yeah. Um, there's there's a few things out there that are um, that are are myths um, and, and one of them you, you touched on is that charter schools are for-profit or that they can be for-profit and opponents of charter schools like to, to throw that out there because it sounds evil that this school is for-profit, that there's billionaires in the background making money off of this, this school and um, just some facts and figures to keep the record straight. The, the number that's thrown out a lot is that 80 percent of Michigan's charter schools are for-profit. What they mean by that is eighty percent of the charter schools have hired a for-profit management company. Right. That's not true. The uh, some charters, the, the the actual number of of charter schools, the actual percentage of charter schools that have hired a uh, management company to operate um, most of its operations, including hiring its teaching staff, is more about fifty percent. Okay, there's another thirty percent or so that have hired a management company to do certain operations like payroll or custodial um transportation so they get lumped into that 80% and if if you were going to do that you'd have to lump in you know half the traditional school right. districts too because right. they hire people to do transportation and custodial and everything else um so it's 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 closer to 50% and of that there are uh, quite a few schools that have hired um that have uh, nonprofit organizations that manage them. Okay. So the number of of schools that actually have for-profit managed companies that are that are running the school is is less than 50%. And um you you, you were you raised a good point when you said that it's really no different uh, or I don't think it's any different than any other government organization hiring um, or government entity hiring an organization if they think it's going to make them more more efficient, right? Um, the, the the issues I'll I'll raise them before before you do. The issues that people have with for profit management companies is that they are number one, they're set up to make a profit. Yep. Um, most of us do our jobs to make a yeah. to make a profit. That's why we're that, that's why we go to work. Um, in addition to trying to make a difference, but um, the issue that they have is that a for-profit management company uh, doesn't have to report all the money that it spends, aside from the money it spends on salaries for right. uh, teachers and administrators. That's another thing people don't realize is that even if you have a for-profit management company that is running a school, you can you can FOIA the school and find out exactly how much every single teacher makes yeah. at, at yep. the school. Um, you can't find out though how much they're spending on you know copying equipment and how much they're paying their c e o right and that's the problem that that people have with um, management companies my My feeling on that is that um you know number one, the school's reporting all the money that it's that it sends, and that's also totally ignoring results and the bottom line should be are kids learning or are they not learning right
0: well yeah, and so now. That actually goes into one of the issues that I wanted to discuss when it comes to the management companies. And before we do that, I also do want to highlight the charter authorizers for a moment right. just because some people may not be aware. You have public entities like Central Michigan University. They're one of the most prevalent charter authorizers in the state, I believe, if not the most, um, where they provide the charter to the school. And that charter tells the school what the school's mission is basically and, and Gives them the authority to open the school and meet the curriculum requirements and all of the things. the The charter authorizers who holds the school accountable for functioning as a well run school. Um, and so you have the schools with their revenue. They give a portion of it to the charter authorizer to serve that function of being the oversight and just the the entity that keeps the school in check now you also have though then that the school brings in revenue based on the per pupil fund student uh, fund uh and they take that money after giving some to the charter authorizer they give some to the uh management company now what i always f- found rather shocking is that there are some schools who give basically the entirety of their revenue to the management companies. And then those management companies run the school, pay the expenses for everything, and they keep what's left over as profit. And so those – when that relationship is formed between the school and the management company, I think that that does give the critics of charter schools who say the charter schools are for-profit entities at that point. There is some legitimacy there because – Virtually all of the revenue is going to the management company and there's that inherent agency problem. If the management company cuts costs, they can increase their profit margin and that agency problem creates a – just a conflict of interest in doing what's best for the school and the students versus what's best for profits. You don't want that to exist. So now there's many charter schools like FlexTech, where I was on the uh, board of, where we only gave just that we gave a 3% of our revenue to the charter authorizer. We gave 3% to the management company and the other 94% of the revenue stayed with the school. When you have that situation in place, the management company is not incentivized to cut costs or do anything that would potentially harm the service that the school provides because it doesn't increase their profits. The only way their profits increase is if the school generates more revenue by attracting more students and they want to do a good job in order to get that. Um, do you see the same potential agency problem though that – does exist with some of these charter schools in Detroit and Flint and some urban areas.
1: Well, the people that don't like management, they don't like the concept of management companies. There's not a lot I, I'm going to be able to tell them that's going to change their mind. Mm-hmm. If they think it's an inherently evil or or um, potentially evil or wrong setup situation, there's not much I can say that, that will convince them that um, – that management companies are something that some schools you know just choose to to use to operate their school uh, it, it kind of is whatever makes most sense for that particular school that's what they're going to do mm-hmm. in terms of the the profit motive that's there that would end up harming the school, hurting the students, hurting the teachers, and everything. The effect that that's going to have because we have school choice in Michigan now is that those parents are going to leave, and that school's not going to be in operation much longer. Right? If you have if you have a school that says we're paying our teachers, you know, X number of um, dollars a year, we're going to devote this percentage of our budget that the school gave us, and we're going to pay our teachers and administrators, and then they decide they're going to start cutting costs, they're going to cut their they're going to cut teaching salaries. They're going to start putting more kids in a classroom. Whatever they're going to do to try to um, increase their profit margin in there, the school is going to suffer as mm-hmm. a result of that. And then students are are going to leave. Um, so th- this idea that, that uh, management companies' number one motive is to cut costs so they can increase their profits, I don't think is any more true for them than it is for any other business that looks at – you obviously want to make uh, you want to be successful. You want to grow your business, and you want to you. You obviously want to make money, but the bottom line is, if you don't have any customers, if you don't have anyone coming into your school, you're not going to be in business much longer. Right. So it's just not a um, it's not a, a a business model that would be sustainable for them to simply look at at the bottom line. But again, I'm I'm somebody that that feels there's that inherent problem with management companies, you know, short of saying we're not going to allow them anymore. There's really not much that myself or anyone else can say that will
0: change their mind. I'm not somebody who has a problem with management companies. I think that at least my personal direct experience with one, I thought it was very well designed. The management company was a very – beneficial entity for the school itself and them getting 3% of the school's revenue to do their thing behind the scenes and that 3% then included their profit margin, whatever it may be from that 3%. But all the other expenses of running the school fell on the school's budget with the 94% of revenue that the school received. They had to pay out all the expenses. Now those expenses were directed by the management company. They were the ones deciding how much to spend on books, computers, what have you. The board would authorize it. But whatever was left over then stayed with the school. We as an entity as a nonprofit school, we built our fund balance. We were then able to take out a bond and expand the school size. And, and it was great to see that the, the nonprofit entity actually being in control of 94 percent of the revenue very much meant that, yeah, the entity then operated as a nonprofit whereas I I do personally just have an objection to the idea of management companies that get a majority if not all of the revenue that the school gets and then because of that agency problem, there is always going to be that inherent conflict of interest and I see no reason to not – have the reforms in place to prevent that from occurring? What is so wrong with there being a constraint as to how much the uh, management company can get from the school's revenue? I
1: think it's whatever makes sense for that school. That's what their board is going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if FlexTech, it made sense for for you to operate the school that way. In other situations, they're going to want more from their management company. They're going to want you know, either more curriculum support or whatever it is. Uh, And um, a a lot of it is uh, also just kind of organizational. It it makes sense for them. They're able to have some economy of scale if they can – if they have three schools they're managing and they can have one human resources department for all those. And they can run all of their insurance through there and payroll and everything else. Um, And they can make joint buying decisions for office supplies or things like that. There's going to be some economies of scale if they – if they do that, so it's kind of whatever makes sense for them. What what I think works best is to um, leave it up leave it up to the school to decide what's going to work best for them. Mm-hmm. There are safeguards in place. There are there is oversight, as you mentioned, from the authorizers. There is oversight that uh, they have to look at every single contract that's approved by the board. Yeah, the the authorizer has to look at all that. That's a Check and balance that's in place in charter schools that's not there for traditional public schools. Right. Um, traditional public school, if they want to sign, if the board wants to sign a contract with someone, the state of Michigan's not going to look it over. No one else is. Right. At a charter school, the board wants to enter into a contract. It's going to go next to the authorizer and they have to approve it. So there are checks and balances in place. There are still all the the same state regulations that the school has to follow. So um, I don't get hung up um, as 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 you do and i and i respect that cuz a lot of other people have that that opinion but i don't get as hung up on wh- whose name is at the top of the check that the teacher gets mm-hmm. uh, compared to the education that the students are receiving and i and i've talked to a lot of parents too and i don't think parents are all that uh concerned about the 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 management status of the school as right. they are with they just know that Mrs. Johnson is a fantastic teacher for my daughter and she's having a great school year and everything. So the parent doesn't care who's who's signing the checks and all that. They just care that it's a great school and that
0: and their child's receiving great education. And that really is what I always have viewed as why charter schools should exist is traditional schools in my ideal world traditional schools would be the best education option for 80% of the students out there. But students are not homogenous entities. They do not all learn the same way. And you're going to need some variety and options that have a little bit more flexibility and nimbleness being a little bit smaller. And that's where charter schools can fill that gap, serving currently at 10% of our state's uh, students and, and another 10% through private schools or homeschooling where – but I, I still want the overall education system to be that the traditional schools are well resourced and well run and and provide a great quality for the vast majority that fit that model and it's just those that that model's not the best option for them they have you know the easy ability to go to charter schools where they they may find a better education outcome for themselves
1: we we all want that everyone in the charter school movement wants traditional public schools to be successful um, but they also feel that that the money that the state gives, the per pupil money that they give to a student, should follow the student, whatever school they go to, whatever school works best for them. Um, the, the, the local school district is not inherently entitled to the dollars that go with a particular student. That should follow the student wherever they decide, wherever their, their family decides. They should they go to school.
0: Before we get to that aspect of the dollars following the students do you you want to discuss it all funding equity in the state because i I know that in Michigan, you know it all changed with proposal A in nineteen ninety four and how schools have been funded, and you still have this disparity between some districts getting the minimum per pupil funding, others getting more than that, and there's an equation where every time it gets raised, the bottom gets raised by twice what the top gets raised and when I ran in 2014, I was saying, "What? Well, let's let's shorten the time it takes to bridge that gap. Let's you know make it ten times or you know four times, to attend, whatever it would take to accelerate the narrowing of that gap to bring it up where the minimum is as equal to the maximum as we can get statewide." Is that something that you I you know as would support as well, or the charter schools in general? Is that something that they typically support? We see totally eye to eye
1: on on that and and. You, you uh you described it perfectly. Yeah. They they use this formula now, it's the two X formula where the districts on the bottom and the charter school's at the bottom, um, if there's an increase, they would get twice the amount as the, the higher funded districts. When before proposal A happened, there was this incredible disparity throughout the state that still exists in a lot of communities. Yeah. Where you had a, a wealthy community like Gross Point or Birmingham that was able to spend you know sixteen thousand dollars per student and then you had these poorer districts who were getting five thousand dollars per per student and it, it all had to do with local votes that were taken uh, back before proposal a that you know yeah. we're rich in this town so we're gonna spend a lot more on our on our schools and that just created this incredible disparity uh, so after proposal a the idea was to close that to close that gap. And the situation we're at right now is that every single charter school, all 293 charter schools are all at the very bottom Right. along with – I shouldn't even say a number. But it's like something like 80 percent of the districts in the state are also right. at that same bottom level, including every district in Livingston yes. County yes. is at the very bottom level. So all the charter schools, all the traditional districts in Livingston County are all at the same level. So you mentioned when you were in for state rep in 2014, you were in favor of accelerating that. Every charter school in every district in Livingston County would be totally agreeing with you. So right now we're getting ready to um, start the the budget battle in Lansing, and that every year that is our number one aim, and it creates this kind of strange bedfellow situation where we are our lobbyist is right alongside that traditional public school lobbyist going for the exact same thing because we all want to lift them up at the um, you know at at accelerate the pace. To to close that gap. So absolutely 100 percent in favor of what you just described. Well,
0: I'm glad we were able to find common ground there.
1: Totally common
0: ground. I think, though, we're going to have not common ground when it comes to voucher types where you were saying that the funding should follow the students. And I'm going to tell a little story Um, in March of 2017. I attended a um, training in Lansing to be a charter school advocate. And this was at the time that Betsy DeVos was having her nomination for uh, secretary of education being fought in Washington. And so there was me and like 12 other board presidents or board members from other charter schools throughout the state. And we're in the room and we're discussing things that we should advocate when lobbying our representatives or state senators um, you know, as to what policy changes we want to see in order to benefit our charter schools. And yes, they were – the people running the training were teaching us certain things that I – I, such as like the funding equity um, that we should be advocating for that. And I happen to mention though that we should also make it clear that we are opposed to vouchers. And everybody in the room just kind of looked at me like, wait, why would you be opposed to vouchers? And here I – I kind of feel that sometimes the charter school advocates don't advocate advocate for what's best for charter schools if instead they can just advocate for what's best to spread the money and kind of undermine the traditional schools sometimes. And I think vouchers are one of those things where right now the status quo is you have the entire funding pie for education, for public education, being divided between the traditional schools and the charter schools and the home schools. And by adding a voucher system, you're going to take that pie and add another slice of it taken away to go to private schools. And by doing that, the charter school slice would decrease just by definition. The, the per pupil funding would decrease probably across the board. And so I don't see how charter school advocates would actually be in favor of vouchers when vouchers would harm the charter schools that are currently in existence.
1: Well, I – a couple things on that. Um, first of all, as an organization, MAPSA is totally agnostic when it comes to vouchers. Okay, we do not advocate for them. They are not our issue. We are, and we will, we will never ever align ourselves uh, on that issue with anyone, for or against. There are a lot of people in the charter school movement who are in favor of vouchers, and a lot of people, for the exact reason that you that you outlined that oppose vouchers. Um, it so it's not our issue. As a as a MAPSA employee, as a maps advocate, mm-hmm. um, I'm totally agnostic on the okay. on the issue of vouchers. Now I will say, um, as a as a individual yeah. and as a Republican, mm-hmm. I have kind of a uh, a different take on things. Um, and here's where I'm at on when it comes to vouchers. Um, number one, back in 2000, we actually voted in the state as to whether or not we should have vouchers. Mm-hmm. And this was the I- initiative that Betsy DeVos was pushing back in the year 2000. It actually went to the to the voters and the voters in Michigan decided they did not want to have vouchers. Okay. So in terms of that, in my mind, it has been settled by the electorate here that we don't want that. If they want to bring it back up again for a vote. It's been twenty years, twenty-one right. yeah. years. Yep. If they want to bring it back up again for a vote, they can. They can do that. Um, but in my mind, it's 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 settled settled law right now that Michigan should not have vouchers because it did go to the voters. They were able to. They were able to have their say. My other part of that is um, I ran for state representative in two thousand and two, right? Uh, as a Republican, and um, vouchers. It was only two years after that election, and they had come up again in um, in the election. And most of the I was in a six way Republican primary. Most of the Republicans in the race said that um, I don't really care what the what the voters said. We still need to push this agenda. My feeling was that no, we should not. Mm-hmm. I was opposed to vouchers back then. I was opposed because we'd already voted on them. And the second reason I was opposed to them is that any time you take federal or state money, it comes with federal or state strings attached. Yeah. And I thought that that would be harmful to private schools, religious schools that had been able to operate mostly independently. You know, There's obviously certain laws they, they need to follow. But in terms of how they design their curriculum, what they decide to teach or not teach – and all that, the the state and, and the federal government can't tell them what to do on that. If they start saying, well, OK, well, now we're going to start giving you money, but you would need to follow this rule and that rule and this rule and that rule. It's it's the same reason that, that Hillsdale College back in the 70s became um, – decided they weren't going to take any federal money right on everything. So they were able to operate independently. Um, so personally, I'm not sold on the idea of vouchers because I think it's going to – um I you know, it it certainly would would make that pie smaller, but I, I think that would end up hurting um private schools. Now, that said, I also think that that we need to expand as many school choice opportunities as we can in the state. Because if you spend any time in a place like Detroit or Flint and you talk to some of those families there, they are absolutely desperate for good schools. Okay. And and it's it's inherently not fair for um You know, for a family that can afford to send their kids to any school they want, including Catholic Central or whatever school, to be able to do that, whereas this family with no means whatsoever is stuck
0: with no options. Right Now, and that actually was going to be the next topic I kind of wanted to go into because it kind of followed along with the charter school cap that was recently removed. Before we get into that, I do want to just give a quick plug for a friend of mine, Uh, his virtual trivia show – Speed Quizzing Live with Kenny Privett. He uh, is based out of Brighton, but it's a great trivia game that anybody can play anywhere. If you're listening to this, you can find his uh, his trivia game on Facebook at Speed Quizzing Live with Kenny Privett. And I got to say, it's just a fun social event to uh, safely get together over Zoom, play some trivia with some great people on uh, Tuesday nights and Friday nights. So everybody should check that out. Um, But to get back to now the charter school cap, when that was removed, I was, again, one of those charter school proponents who thought that removing the cap was something that hurt my charter school, FlexTech, because it it seems to me the conservatives want to increase competition in education. But they don't really want the people involved to be great competitors, as a existing charter school, I, the competitive decision on my end is to not want to easily make it where more charter schools could just, you know, pop up more easily. It, those barriers to entry in the marketplace were a good thing as a existing charter school. And so I often, that was one of those things where the, the lobbyists who were supposed to be advocating on my behalf as a charter school board president seemed to instead be advocating against what was in the best interest of my charter school. And so can you talk about that where removing the cap, you know, maps his position on that or your personal position and the idea that you can make it where the market can get flooded with schools. And yes, you're going to then allow the cream of the crop to rise to the top. But along the way, you're going to have a lot of failed experiments in education and when i use the analogy of restaurants right now you know restaurants you can go anywhere and see a whole bunch of restaurants and the best ones they survive the worst ones they don't they go out of business and most of them fail and that's fine for the marketplace when it comes to food because worst case scenario you show up you have a bad meal you don't go back but for these students who are attending these schools that are on a path to failure. That has such a long-term effect on those students that I don't see it as a benefit to the overall system for it to be the Wild West of as many schools that want to enter the marketplace as possible and only the best ones are going to continue to be there. Along the way, the ones that fail, you have a lot of collateral damage with those students.
1: Great, great, great question. So just some history on it. Uh, the, the cap was lifted in 2011 yeah. when the legislature voted um, in a very contentious that, uh, session that happened right before Christmas um, and then uh, Governor Snyder signed it in early 2012. So the cap was lifted. There used to be an artificial cap of 150 university-authorized charter schools in mm-hmm. Michigan. Uh, Anyone that wasn't – and most charter schools are authorized by a state university. But there are, however, a number that are authorized by community colleges, by intermediate school districts, local school districts. They were never subject to the CAP to begin with. The CAP only dealt with university charter schools. The people who were opposing it, primarily the teachers' unions, were telling everyone – trying to tell everyone at the time this was going to be kind of like you described. This was going to be the Wild West. There were going to be charter schools popping up on every corner. There were going to be no safeguards. Anybody who wanted to open a charter school could open a charter school. They kind of ran with that narrative and every single thing that they predicted has not come true. Mm-hmm. Number one, the the it hasn't been the Wild West of charter school openings. For the first couple of years after the cap, there were maybe like 20 or 30 schools that would open up every year mm-hmm. and maybe six or seven that would close either for poor – Performance or low enrollment, and we've gotten to the point now where we are we are seeing a, uh, either a net decrease or a total stability in the number of charter schools in Michigan. For the last three or four years, we've actually dropped um, the number of schools that have, in terms of the total number of, of schools that we've had, because more schools have closed than have than have opened. The thing that no one um, that the opponents of the cap didn't take into account back then is that there were still the safeguards in place that the authorizers had that they were not going to let anybody who wanted to open up a charter school right. so just come to us uh the two biggest authorizers in the state are central Michigan and grand Valley okay and so they are and they're fantastic authorizers yes because, they are. yeah they and you have yeah. familiarity with central and and they are um they know what they're doing. They're so careful uh, and they have gotten really, really good at making sure that only the schools that have the best chance of succeeding are going to be able to open. And they, the process you need to go through to get a charter is incredibly complicated and difficult as it should be. Mm-hmm. It's an extremely difficult thing to open up a charter school in Michigan. My wife went through it when her, her school was a, a private school. It was a private Montessori school and – they wanted to convert it to a charter school, yeah. because there were. She was finding that a lot of her families were simply not able to afford it anymore, right? And she was feeling terrible that. And she's in Pinckney, which is, you know, there, there's more poverty than you'd think in that part of the, of the county. But you know, she's she wasn't in a in a, in an economically depressed area. But but still, there were a lot of families that weren't able to afford it. So she wanted to become a charter school, and I was able to. You know, be be there alongside her as she went through this process and it's incredibly difficult to open Ooh, up a authorized. charter school. Grand Valley. Grand Valley. Authorizes okay. yep. that school. Um, and so the, the system has worked the way it's supposed to work. Um, mm-hmm. The problem – this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but the problem that we run into in Michigan is that – um, most schools are authorized by by universities, but local school districts can also also authorize a charter school. Yes, and a lot of them have done that. I shouldn't say a lot; a few right. of them have done that, and they don't know what they're doing. Right, and the schools that they've uh, authorized don't know what they're doing, <laughs> and they they do it as a money grab. Uh, you know these you. you there's tiny little districts all over the state that have um, you know one school or two schools that they're authorizing, and, and they're only doing it to grab that three
0: well, percent of revenue. That Because we had that locally, that fight with the uh, Livingston Classical Academy approaching the Brighton School District and trying to get the Brighton School District to be the charter authorizer for this charter school. And at the time, it was concerning to me that there were board members on the local school – on the Brighton School Board who were in favor of being the charter authorizer. And again, it just struck me as here – now, those those board members, they were the conservative board members. It seemed to me that, yeah, they're in favor of competition, but they as an actual entity in the realm of education were not being good competitors. For them to authorize a competitor to enter the market – The calculus that it would take for what they would be looking at revenue-wise is that the 3 percent revenue from that school would have to exceed the revenue that they'd be losing by the students who would be otherwise going to the Brighton traditional schools, going to that charter school. And I – I mean to open up a competitor within your own district to me does not seem like it is a – ever a good competitive – Idea. Now, it ended up that Whitmore Lake School District ended up being the charter authorizer. Um, And I am very curious. I don't know how it has worked out for them financially. And if they saw that the students going to the charter school, if more than 3% of them came from the Whitmore Lake School District, I would view that as them having lost out on the revenue there rather than actually it being a uh, net benefit for that school district. And so – the idea that these local school – those – these local school board uh, members, if they want to, they can get elected and make decisions that actually harm their the, – the entities that they are supposed to be representing as school board members.
1: Right, and, and usually um, the, the – usually that's not the case where the, the – charter school they authorize as taking students away. Mm-hmm. Usually the charter schools they authorize are either a cyber school that are going to get students from all over the state, not just from their particular area or it's going to be such a unique niche school. There was one in, in Livonia that was authorized that was a, a Japanese uh, immersion – Japanese language immersion school uh-huh. that the Livonia School District authorized and then had, did a terrible job of um, following through with it. And they ended up the school ended up having to close because of the arrangement that they had. Um, so it's not usually schools that will draw away from the uh, from the local district because they're so different and unique. Um, but the kind of the larger point I wanted to make is is that going back to the cap lift is that. Um, it, it hasn't been – all, all the, the, the doomsday scenarios that they're trying to paint, it, right. noth, none of those have come true. Mm-hmm. That we haven't – it hasn't been the Wild West and it's still extremely difficult to open a charter school if you go through a university authorizer. Yeah. If you find a way around it, that's what we need to, to look at. But the um, you know overall lifting of the cap I think has been
0: a positive thing for hmm. – for students in the state, I, I may then concede with you and give you that point.
1: <laughs> if, if if you just and and again, it was a um, it was a talking point that came out. They're trying to scare people at at the time, and it just didn't really pan yeah. out. It hasn't pan out that way. We've had right. you know we've had eight years now of of data that we can look at to right. say, okay, this has not been the case. And and as you know with with tech too, you need to you need to continually prove to your authorizer every 3 or 4 years when your contract comes yes. up that you are doing the job. Yes. That you and and that your enrollment is is healthy and that your, you know, finances are good and that your kids are meeting the academic goals that they've that they've set. And if you don't do that, you're and that so be around.
0: I think that takes us to another area where we may find some common ground with the academic standards. Now, it especially as the board president of a charter school that was a high school level, I often thought – when I would see our school test scores, they were not performing well. But as the board president, I understood that that is the culmination of many, many years of education that – Trevor Burrus other districts. Yeah, in, in kids, other schools. Those kids didn't come up going right. FlexTech. And, and as a general idea, most students start out in the traditional schools and it's if the traditional schools – are not a good fit for them that eventually they decide okay this wasn't working for us let's try one of these alternatives with a charter school that maybe FlexTech is project-based learning and so maybe they wanted to see if that would be a better fit for them and so they show up and they're trying you know they're doing their best at our school now their test scores along the way are a reflection of them not being a great fit in the years previous to coming to FlexTech and also it's possible that FlexTech is not a better fit for them than the traditional school was. You know, that's our goal is to be a better option. But it's not always, you know, you you put out a product. It's not going to be great for everybody who tries it. But for those who do try it and excel, that's the reason for having the charter school is, is for those students that it is the right fit and you can see their growth and their educational success that exists because of the charter school. But if you are looking at test scores of the entire population, there are so many factors that go into play. And it's unfortunate, at least from my perspective, that our education system evaluates schools on places so much emphasis on test scores. And I would personally love to see that it moved away from that. And I didn't know if that is a policy that you would, you know, share
1: with me. For the most part, yeah, definitely. So there's two kinds of assessments. There is proficiency and then there's growth. Yeah. Proficiency are the ones where a lot of uh, charter schools don't do as well because – especially at the high school level because those kids are coming in from other districts. and they Maybe they bounced around for three or four different schools before they get to that high school in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. So you can't be held accountable for their proficiency when they get there in ninth grade when right. they haven't been in your system right. the entire time. So if you were to evaluate a school like FlexTech based on proficiency scores, or the same is true with a lot of high schools, um, they might not do as well, but th- they that's not their fault. Mm-hmm. So growth is by far a much more um, important uh, test that you can use to uh, to see if a student is actually learning. So if you get a kid into a high school, a, a charter high school in ninth grade, you see where they're at in the fall of their of their freshman year you see where they're at in the spring of their of their freshman year and and if you see that they're growing in there then you that's how you should judge a school mm-hmm. that's how you should judge a school not on proficiency but on but on growth when you have these larger districts that are uh that have a kid from kindergarten through twelfth grade then you can maybe look more at the proficiency scores because th- there you're looking at their the entirety of their education their k twelve education but I think it's uh extremely important that we um and there's people that want to do away with all all testing, all growth testing. It's too stressful, too stressful on parents, too stressful on kids and, you know, teachers and everything else. And I believe me, I understand the stress that's involved in that. I think it is important though to to continue to have those assessments because there's no other way you're going to be able to find out where a student is at right. in there. It's I, just that growth yeah. needs to be the most important one.
0: I, I'm an advocate for having the assessments You know, sporadically. I, I think back to when I was in school and we would take tests every so often. It has definitely accelerated and gotten to – the pendulum swung too far to too many tests. But having tests is definitely worthwhile for the knowledge of where the students are. I just don't personally view them necessarily as a great use for evaluating performance of any specific teacher or – I mean I guess the school as a whole, if they've been there long enough, then yeah, you can measure the growth. But individual teachers being held to – their evaluations based on the test scores of their students, it can be – really a – again, creates that agency problem where there's a conflict of interest where the teacher then isn't worried so much about what's best for the student. It's about what's best for their test score and and if one thing that they could do which would be better for the student takes away from the test score, then they don't do it and vice versa. Um And so I just – I do hope that with a democratic governor and a legislature that is – controlled by the Republicans. These are the areas where I would believe both sides could find a lot of common ground there. Um, But we just don't typically see that happening. And as somebody who has observed Lansing for over a decade now, it is concerning that we don't solve these problems that everyone should be in mostly agreement on. um, And and I wish that it was a better functioning uh, system.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It It's extremely dysfunctional. Uh, even when you have both parties controlling it, it can be yeah. really dysfunctional um, on there. But uh, you know, in terms of using those scores to evaluate a teacher, a, a teacher's performance on there, uh, if, if that's the only metric that you're using to evaluate a teacher, then you're going to have a lot of very unhappy teachers in your district. They're not going to want to stick around. Uh, I'll use a, an anecdotal example of how I think it it can work and should work um, from, from my wife's school. Uh, they're such a small school and they have such small class sizes in there that they are really able to look at each individual student and how they're doing. And those teachers, when they have the, the, the data that comes out that, for the growth thing, uh, for the growth tests that they take – they cannot wait to look at those numbers because they are able then to they don't judge them as a class they judge them as each individual student mm-hmm. they're going he was really having trouble with English at the beginning of the year, so we tried these different things. this wasn't working, so we switched it we tried this and and when those when those numbers come out and they're able to to really see how Johnny is doing now in reading, it's like christmas morning for them that they, they they love looking at that stuff. And part of that is uh, – I know it's because these teachers know that uh, this is not how I'm – I'm not being judged on what his score is uh, in there. I, I'm using this data because I want to see how my students are growing. Right. I, I want to see you know where the gaps are, what's working, what's not working because you know, we're going to try something different. And a lot of it, they can find out just by observing it. But a lot of it, you can really only get when they do those – when they do those assessments. So I, I think, you know, data in the in, in the right way, uh, I, I know a lot of teachers who absolutely love uh data. They they are crazy about it because it helps give them a window into their into their students. Yeah. Um but you know, I, I also know that that uh every single teacher I can say that I've ever met uh doesn't think we need to do more testing yeah. with kids. That seems to be pretty and every you know, student of course would agree. Uh, With that
0: as well. So it's how you assess them and then how you use that that's important. To um, zoom out a little bit, we have a couple minutes left. Did you want to talk on any national education policies? Sure. Is there anything that you view as something that you're focused on with your uh, profession? So education is mostly a
1: state. Uh, it's mostly a state issue. Mm-hmm. Funding is controlled by the state. Most regulations are. But um, federal policy can be really important not only for charter schools but for every school because there are certain things that um, that they're going to require that are going to come into play. Specifically related to charter schools, we've had four presidents during the charter school era, yeah. two Republicans and two Democrats. And they have all four of them uh, – I'm sorry. We're on our fifth now. Mm-hmm. The four before President Biden were all – um, it's probably the only issue you could say this about, but they were all totally supportive of charter schools as an option for parents. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama was probably the most supportive president that that charter schools have ever had. He's been the biggest friend we've ever had. So yeah. when you're talking charter schools, I will sing President Obama's praises far and wide. Mm-hmm. There is real concern with President Biden that that is going to um, that is going to uh, take a step back. He embraced a lot of uh, anti-charter um, policies that were drawn up primarily by Bernie Sanders. Okay. Um, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were, were awful on the issue of charter schools and choice and I think they suffered because of it uh, in the primaries, particularly where they got into states where there were a large number of minority uh, voters. Um, but pr- President Biden, he was trying to win some of the Bernie Sanders people over and he embraced a lot of those policies which are, were horrible. So there was a lot of concern when he was going to name his education secretary that it was going to be a teachers' union person or somebody who was going to be uh, really anti-charter, mm-hmm. and he surprised us all. He named uh, a guy named Miguel Cardona, who is the essentially the state superintendent in Connecticut, and he's been throughout his hearings and all the stuff he did. He's been fantastic. We're yeah. all, we're all as excited about him as everyone else. Okay. Um, the, the concerning appointment was he has appointed this woman named Cindy Martin who was the superintendent from San Diego uh, to be the deputy uh, secretary of education, the number two person there mm-hmm. and she has been really um, uh, not very good on the issue of charter schools. The other issue that um, – the other group of people who are strongly opposed to her are the civil rights – people in the NAACP because her district has a, a terrible um, track record of suspending minority students at a much higher rate than than um, non-minority students. So when Cindy Merton was appointed, she was kind of – we think she was appointed to appease the teachers' unions in there. It created again this really strange bedfellow group of Charter school people and the NAACP are both going. No, no, no. We, we don't want her. Well,
0: now because when you describe her as being opposed to charter schools, what are the policies that she is? Or, or when you were saying that you know President Biden, when he was running, he was advocating for some policies that were anti-charter schools. What are those policies?
1: The policies. The the most harmful one was a policy that would have said that uh, right now um, every school district receives certain money from the federal government yeah. for title funding yep. and, and certain other things. Um, what uh, President Biden um, he endorsed this policy that that Bernie Sanders people had had uh, drawn up that said that any district or any money that comes from the federal government to a charter school has to first be approved by the local school district wherever that charter school happens to be located. Okay. So there's 60 charter schools in the city of Detroit. Right. Um, according, if if this policy were enacted, the Detroit uh, public school district would be able to have veto power over whether or not those schools and those charter schools in Detroit received any of that federal money, All
0: right. that money. I had not heard this issue before and let me just respond to it r- real-time reaction. I think that that is a horrible policy personally because again, it creates a conflict of interest. The school boards, the local school boards, if they're being good competitors, they do not want – funding to go to the charter schools and so if you give them the ability to decide whether or not their competitors receive funding of course they have that incentive to say no exactly that's yeah. going to hurt the students at the charter schools and and that's where me though as a progressive i sometimes dislike the idea of how much we have moved our education system to competition-based because when you inject competition into these systems, you do have that where the competitors are then going to try to harm each other and and this is a perfect example of enabling one one of them to harm the other and I don't – so I don't support that policy. I do think the reason that policy is so problematic is because we've introduced so much competition. Um but yeah, that I'm I'm glad to see that Biden does not appear to be going down that road with his education secretary. Hopefully not. Secretary. We're yeah.
1: we're still very guarded um, mm-hmm. on there. He um you know, he's only been president for a month or so now, so we'll have to see where everything goes, but uh we were very encouraged by his his choice of education secretary. I don't think that Going after charter schools is high on his agenda right, right. now. He has got bigger fish to fry uh, right now, so we'll kind of see where everything um, where everything goes. But but kind of the, the more important um, issue, I think, is this that's really troubling is that we've we've gone on for twenty five years now where charter schools have been a mostly at the federal level have been a mostly bipartisan issue where Republicans and Democrats both see the value in them. Yeah. and I think we're moving. In a troubling direction right now, where at least at the federal level, we're now fi- starting to see some people who um, you know don't necessarily uh, agree with that, and so yeah, yeah there is real concern uh, about which direction Biden is going to go when it comes to to charter schools and choice. So yeah. we'll, we'll ho- hopefully he'll you know follow what Barack Obama and Bill Clinton did, and, and
0: you I see the value in them, and I. I- I share with you that hope, and uh, I'm glad that we're, we'll be able to end it on on that note then because, uh, yeah, we have reached about an hour. So, Buddy Morehouse, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I love this, Jordan. Thank you. Is there any last things you would like to say to the audience? No, I, this probably
1: wasn't as um, maybe uh, contentious as, as uh, you know, you – a lot of other issues I think they're going to come up on the podcast here, so, mm-hmm. but I think that's a good thing then. We have a Democrat and Republican, and we both agree.
0: Well, yeah, and, and that's what I'm hoping the show is. It doesn't have to be so contentious when we sit down and actually discuss the issues in a way that hopefully others can start doing as well more often. So, Buddy Morehouse, thank you. and thank you. Uh, Everybody watching or listening, thank you as well, and take care.